Habakkuk. If you don't, um, the Bible's in front of you. I believe it's on page 662, so that was a close call there. Um, that's a bad joke. You can all laugh. Um, also, uh, if, or you know, in your devices, whatever, it's uh, after Nahum and before Zephaniah. And if still you can't find it, then go to the New Testament and work your way back. It's a few books in. Uh, so the prophet Habakkuk. And that's where we're going to begin today. Um, and if you would... Join me in prayer, and then we will read. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise and honor for this day. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our sleep and into worship this morning with your gathered bride. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for worship of you in song. Lord, we thank you for worship of you through liturgy and confession, both of faith and of sin. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. So, Lord, we pray as we continue to worship you in word and in song and in Eucharist. Lord, we pray, God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, beginning in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So that's exactly where we're going to start and stop today. Uh, Obviously, our sermon text is a bit shorter than normal, but nobody messed up, right? Nothing's crazy here, right? What what I thought instead, because it's ordinary time, I thought what it might be fun to do is to do something a little different by way of our sermon time for the next few weeks, kind of like what Pastor Dennis used to do with the Psalms, right? He would do the Psalms of summer. Um, So I thought we would break from the lectionary a little bit. So after... Talking with uh, the other elders and with our deacon, I thought, you know, really, ordinary time is kind of the best time to experiment and do something different every now and then, right? And so, what, what, why not? Uh, so, for the next five Sundays, so through all of August and then the very first Sunday of September, we're basically going to do a quote-unquote series through the, through the, through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, because really, how often do we really think about many of these minor prophets? I mean, I'm going to regret asking this question, and you can respond or not if you want to, but by show of hands, how many people have even read Habakkuk over the last couple of years? Like like two or three, right? So a couple around the room, right? I mean, not that that's bad, right? We're a fairly biblically literate church, but let's be honest. How often does Habakkuk really come up, right? Plus, I've heard his name said like five different ways, right? It's Habakkuk or Habakkuk or, you know, Habby. I mean, however you want to pronounce it. He's got an interesting name, right? But... From the outset of this series, let me just tell you where we're going to go with the whole thing. That way there's no surprises by the time we get to September 4th. So who here, again, this is a time where you can or you don't have to, you know, respond. But who here has ever asked God why? Man, I know I have, right? Or or even really presume to get to the point where you say, Lord, what are you doing? Right? Or... More often than not, especially in certain places in the world, and also the South, really, God, mosquitoes and heat waves, like, what are you thinking, right? But really, at the end of the day, humanity, we are are a 
curious creation, right? We, we, we ask questions. And many times we often ask questions to God or we even presume to complain to God sometimes. So the whole point behind this time in Habakkuk is to simply ask and then try to answer the question, is it wrong for us to question God or is it wrong for us to complain to God? Now, personally, I think the answer is no, right? I don't, th- I don't think it's wrong. But we are a people who trust in the authority and adhere to the authority of Scripture. So we have to take into consideration all scriptural examples of when God is questioned or complained to and then see the scriptural examples of how he responds when he chooses to answer. So there are a lot of examples in Scripture. But from Habakkuk alone, as we will see as we go through this, I think we will quickly conclude that God is not offended by our questions when we ask them. Nor is he offended by our humanity, meaning I don't think he's offended by our frustrations or our concerns or our anxieties or our depression, whatever that might be. But he does show us in his word that while we should come to him in times of confusion, and he encourages us to do so, at the same time, we need to understand when we do question him or when we presume to vent our anger at him, there is a rightful destination where we must end up. We must arrive at resting in his sovereignty because he is God. And this is why. Other than that that being the obvious answer, right? Here's why. Our destinations really clarify what our hearts truly care about, right? So a destination as believers in Christ set on God's sovereignty helps to give us clarity in the midst of our questions or in the midst of our frustrations or in the midst of our times of confusion and complaints to God. So as we set out towards this destination, just to use, continue the illustration of really traveling, right? The reason that we're only looking at one verse for today is that I simply want to just set for us the context both of Habakkuk and this whole series. I mean, we're going to spend five weeks in a three-chapter book. So, you know, let's take a week and, and try to figure out what's going on. Right, so really think of it, again, keeping that illustration of like traveling. Think of it like getting a car ready for a road trip. Right? You fill up the gas, you check the oil, you kick the tires to make sure they don't need air, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to kick the tires a little bit. Because really, honestly, Habakkuk isn't all that different from us. Other than just being a guy, he's really not all that different. His context really isn't all that different. Other than the fact that you know, we have electricity and air conditioning and he didn't. I mean, Habakkuk, though, was a man who was deeply, deeply frustrated with his own people and his own nation. He was frustrated at their sin, and he was frustrated at their abandonment of God. That sounds immediately applicable when looking at it at face value. But Habakkuk also understood that his nation, particularly Judah, to whom he was prophesying, they were God's chosen people. They were God's favored people, God's covenant people. God had promised them his love and his guidance. He's promised us his love and his guidance. God had promised them his presence. He has promised us the same thing, not only in the incarnation of Christ, but in the sending of his spirit. And now, though, Habakkuk, his people, were dealing with violence and persecution. They were, half of them, Israel, they were already in exile by the time Habakkuk prophesied. And it, will look, and it was looking like Judah was about to join them in exile. So, Let's begin then by asking a follow-up question to the premise question of this whole study, right? So again, our original question is, is it wrong to question or to complain to God? 
Now, while I think the answer is no, again, let's, let's ask a follow-up question here. So are there other examples in Scripture where someone questions God or complains to God? Or is this something that we only find in the prophet Habakkuk? Well, again, we're a fairly biblically literate church. Most people in the room are probably thinking, I know exactly who I'm talking about. Like, this guy questions, this person questions. I mean, let's be honest, the Exodus generation, right? They come out of Egypt, and they are the most gripey, complainy group of people on the planet, right? God had rescued them from slavery, and all they did for 40 years was gripe, right? But... For the sake of time, we're just going to look at three very quickly. Three examples instead of the Exodus generation because we could spend the entire year in the Exodus generation and still not finish all their complaining and griping. But unlike the Exodus generation, though, pay attention to these three examples and the destination to where each of them arrive. So first, and probably the most immediately obvious example from the Old Testament is Job. Right? Most of us know who Job is. We have an elder that wrote a modern fictionalized story of Job called The Job. It's on Amazon, and it's out there. I think it's like a dollar or it's free, right? So, you know, it's out there. If you've got questions about it, though, Craig wrote it, so ask him. But we know his story pretty well, right? You get to Job 1. He's wealthy. He's got great health. He's got a lot of possessions, a lot of herds, a lot of servants. He even has a, a nice group of kids, right? But we also read there in the first few verses that Job feared God, and he feared God so much that he even offered sacrifices for his children just in case they had offended God or cursed God. So then as you continue through the first chapter, Satan actually enters into the heavenly court and he starts to accuse Job before God. And, and Satan tells God, he says, you've protected Job and you have cared for Job and you've blessed Job. But if you were to take all that away, he would curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, go do it. Right? Just don't take his life. And so as the story starts to unfold, right, he, Job loses everything, right? He loses his wealth. He loses his possessions. He loses his children. He loses his herds. He even gets to the point where he is physically sick, like boils and everything else. So he loses all of it, but, but he never curses God. Even after his wife begins to nag him to do so, he never curses God. And then Job has possibly the three worst quote-unquote friends on the face of the planet, right? So they show up, and for about seven days, they're nice, right? They mourn with him. They see his condition. They weep with him. But then they start to tell him, you know, you've, you've sinned. Somehow you've sinned against God. Otherwise, God would not do this. So you need to repent. But the problem is, we know this as the reader, and Job knows this. He hadn't done anything wrong. And that's what really nagged him, right? And so throughout the entire book, he is questioning why God had allowed these bad things to happen to him. And so he's always complaining, why me, God? Why me, God? And then in chapter 38, God responds out of a whirlwind. He responds out of a tornado, basically, which tells us something important before we look further at Job. You can complain to God and you can question God, but don't be offended if he chooses to answer you or if he chooses to answer you in a way you don't like or if he chooses to answer you out of a tornado. Right? Because we live in a very high tornado traffic area. Please be careful how you gripe to God. Because nobody wants to deal with that. Right? So, anyway, God responds to Job. But I want you to hear Job's reply. Because Job replies in two parts. Or he gets to his destination in two parts. And starting in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, Job says this. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? 
I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Basically what Job says, in the grand scheme of the universe, I am small, and I should have just kept my mouth shut. Job humbles himself. He arrives at humility. So then, through the rest of chapter 40 and through verse 41, God questions Job. He he responds with questions. So God tells him, he says, you need to get up. You need to dress for action. Gird up your loins is the the biblical phrase here. And you need to be a man because you've griped to me for a while. Now it's my turn. I'm going to question you, right? This is the most terrifying place on the planet to be at the moment, right? God is not only talking to you and questioning you, but he's doing it out of a tornado. That's terrifying. But God throws some questions at Job to remind Job of whom he has presumed to gripe to. And so then we come to the second part of Job's reply in chapter 42. And we see that he repents and he rests in God's sovereignty. This is where he arrives. He says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I heard of you by hear, uh, I had heard of you by hearing of, of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's destination was humility and repentance and resting in sovereign, God's sovereignty. A second example comes from the Psalter, and while there are a lot of examples in Psalms of this, I just want to turn our attention to Psalm 13, where we see David lamenting, which is complaining or questioning really he's 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 weeping david has gotten to this point where he's emotionally spent right and he's absolutely frustrated because his enemies were prevailing over him and he feels as though god had abandoned him now for being honest we probably have those moments throughout our lives too right god where are you and this is exactly where david is So David asks throughout the psalm, he complains, he says, how long, God, how long are you going to forget me? How long are you going to hide from me? How long are you going to allow me to be pummeled by my enemies? But then in the last two verses, David, like Job, he arrives at the same destination. He arrives at humility and repentance and resting in the sovereignty of God. He says this, I have trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Job, excuse me, David, like Job, humbles himself, repents, and rests in God's sovereignty. And then lastly, one final example comes from the New Testament, which is from our Lord himself. In each of the four Gospels, we read Jesus' prayer in the garden before he's betrayed, the night before his, his passion. Now, John gives us Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, which is different, but, but it's... It, you know, for, this, for the sake of this point, it serves the same purpose, right? So it's his prayer. And in each of those Gospels, what we see is that Jesus arrives immediately at the destination that David and Job eventually get to, right? And here's why Christ is our better example, right? He's better than David. He's better than, you know, everything else. But while Jesus doesn't need to repent, what we do see is that he does rest in the Father's sovereignty and in his plans. He doesn't complain. He doesn't gripe. But he does ask for another way, if it be possible, that this cup of wrath of the cross might be removed from him. Luke even goes so far to tell us of Jesus' anxiety and agony by noting for us that his sweat become like drops of blood because he's so anxious and agonizing over the cross. So back to our original question, and then we'll 
return to Habakkuk. Is it wrong for us to question God or to complain to God? I don't think so, because as we've seen just in these few examples, we are human and God understands our humanity, and he's not offended by it. But even more so from the example of Christ, in the incarnation of Christ, Hebrews tells us that Christ himself became like us in every way but without sin, and so he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, which also means he's able to sympathize with us in our frustration and in our anxiety and even in our depression, and to offer us the right and better example on how to approach God in our frustrations, in our concerns, in our questions, so that we will arrive at the correct destination of humility and repentance and resting in the sovereignty of God. All right, so we've looked at a few scriptural examples. Let's go back to Habakkuk and consider real quickly this one and only verse and look a little bit again at his context to see how maybe if there's any possible relation between him and us and how he helps us to answer this question. So first, who was Habakkuk, right? Our one and only verse, again, for this morning reads this. It gives us his name and his office, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. That's it. That's all we know about him. There's nothing else that we know about Habakkuk from Scripture. He is a prophet and his name is Habakkuk. We don't know where he's from. We don't know what his family lineage is. We don't know any of it. The only thing we really kind of do know is looking at how he references things as we can kind of pinpoint the time in history that he's in. And so tradition and history tell us that he was probably a contemporary of Zephaniah and of Jeremiah and possibly even of Ezekiel and Daniel just because of the folks that he references in this, in this, in this work. But I want to consider two more clarifying factors in this verse for today as we consider Habakkuk's context. So again, this, this verse reads this. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So I emphasize those two words for a reason because we need to understand what an oracle is. right? If we're going to try to answer this question, if it's wrong to complain to God, then we need to understand what Habakkuk means by oracle. Because when we think of an oracle, we think of prophecy. right? And that makes sense, especially considering Habakkuk's office. right? He's a prophet, and prophets deliver prophecies. So logic tells us that Oracle means prophecy. And that is a fine translation of the Hebrew. But like all things in Scripture, there are layers, like onions, as Shrek would tell us, right? They're, they're like, like onions. So, or like cake. Everybody likes cake better than onions, right? So, maybe, I don't know. But there's more going on here than a simple prophetic message. Because the Hebrew word here for the word oracle is the word masa, which, like all Hebrew words, has a whole lot of meaning. And each meaning actually helps us as we understand Habakkuk's frustration in this book and his complaints in this book. Because in Hebrew, this word can also mean burden or utterance or even doom. The Septuagint actually translates oracle as burden instead of oracle or prophecy because of the weight of the burden that he has to now deliver. Right? Habakkuk has been given this heavy burden that he now has to turn around and deliver to Judah. So think of it that way. The burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. The doom that Habakkuk the prophet saw. But there's another possible translation of this verse, or this word, excuse me, that's important to note. Because while oracle does pertain to prophecy, this word can be translated another way. Again, the verse reads, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. 
So the word masa can also be translated as vision or an act of sight. So the vision of burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So a lot, a lot like what we considered last week as we were finishing up Colossians, this really is a vision, a mysticism that's grounded in orthodoxy, that's grounded and rooted in God, because his focus is above, not on the things of the earth. Habakkuk sees, he sees through a vision given to him by God, and he sees the prophetic message of the coming Babylonian exile, which I think really gives us a very important contextual factor in understanding Habakkuk's questions and his complaints in this book. He sees the oracle, but his book, especially the first chapter and a half, it's not the oracle itself that he's actually writing down. It's his reaction to that oracle. It's his reaction to that vision, to that doom, to that burden. And it's his questions and complaints to God regarding the vision that he had received. And you'll notice as we make our way through this book that He never actually addresses Judah. Instead, this whole book is a dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. So just placing this vision, this burden within its historical context, again, it's it's set before the Babylonian exile. So we do know that Babylon destroys Jerusalem somewhere around 587. And Judah, the southern kingdom, right? Israel is now in exile. Judah, the southern kingdom, it's... It's a kingdom that has become very morally and spiritually corrupt. They were worshiping Baal in the high places. They were offering their children to Moloch. They even allowed the temple to fall into ruin. We saw some of this as we were in Isaiah back in June. But the society itself was showing signs of rot and collapse, even though they were living in wealth and luxury. Again, that sounds immediately applicably familiar, right? I mean, wealth and luxury with a crumbling culture, that, that sounds like we can immediately apply that. But for them, it was also a very politically turbulent time. Again, very immediately applicable. Right? For them, the Assyrian Empire had ruled over Judah for about 100 years, and they had ruled them pretty harshly. They had demanded very heavy tributes. They gave very heavy punishment. But Assyria's power was starting to wane, and Babylon, as we know, is about to take over. So with that context in mind, that historical context, consider how Habakkuk's oracle, his vision, would have been a burden for him to deliver to Judah once they heard it, right? They're in wealth and luxury, but they're ignoring their crumbling culture. And so they get this this vision of doom pronounced to them from God. They would not have accepted that well. Life's going great. Why do I care, right? They never accepted the prophets well, right? Half of them were either killed or thrown in prison or exiled, right? So I mean, it's just the way it went. But... From Habakkuk's perspective, think think about this. He was asking questions that all suffering people ask. Lord, how is it that the wicked prosper, but you seem to ignore when the righteous are suffering? These are questions that we'll read in this book. So, And you'll notice also, just again, building on what we just finished in Colossians, Habakkuk was not content to hear a human philosophical response to these questions. He wanted... God to respond. And so he asked God directly, Lord, please answer these complaints. Answer these concerns. Our Eastern Orthodox friends state that this all could be boiled down to simply the problem of evil. And they write here, they say, Habakkuk agonizes in his soul, and he agonizes that the wickedness, the strife, and oppression are rampant in Judah, but that God seemingly has done nothing about it. 
And his perplexity, they say, his perplexity intensifies, though, when he learns that God will judge Judah by the hands of the Babylonians, who are even more wicked than the people of Judah are. That's why he gets so frustrated. These are horrible, horrible people. They hate you, God. They aren't called by you. They're not your covenant people. Why are you using them to judge us? I mean, think about our own context, right? What if this were Russia, right? Which, let's be honest, the way things seem to be playing out, you know, could very well happen. Or what if it were China? Over the past week, let's be honest again, that very well could play out. You just never know how God is going to work. I imagine that if Russia or China were to do something like Babylon did to Judah, we would have many in the West, even in the church, that would shake their fists at God and go, you need to answer me. Because these are horrible people from our worldview. Why are they judging us? But note something very important here as we go through this. Even in his complaints to God and questions to God, Habakkuk is never angry with God. He's frustrated, and he's rightly frustrated, but he's frustrated with his own people. And he's just trying to make sense of this oracle, of this vision, of this burden that he has to deliver. Calvin writes here, he says, Habakkuk reproves his own nation and shows that they had disdainfully resisted all of God's prophets. The burden then of Habakkuk was this, that God, after having exercised a very long forbearance, would now bring punishment upon their sins. And so while Habakkuk may not fully comprehend, he may not fully understand what God is doing, and he may question God and he may complain to God about God's choice in judgment against them, he still arrives at the same destination as David and as Job and that we are to arrive at, which is, Humility, repentance, and resting in the sovereignty of God. So one final thing I want to do before we come to the table is, this may seem odd, but I do think it will be helpful. I want us to hear Habakkuk's exchange with the Lord in its entirety. So I'm just going to read the whole book. It's just three chapters. It will only take a couple of minutes. But I think it will be beneficial as we unpack it over the next four Sundays because today is the the first one. So... Um, So sit back if you want. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. You're welcome to read along with me. Again, it's on page, I believe, 662 of the NIVs that are in the back of the pews there. But if you would, sit back and listen or read along with me and hear the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted. And God answers, starting in verse 5, and says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar, and they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. 
They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. And Habakkuk complains a second time and says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net, and he gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples, You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done in Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? 
for its maker trusts in his, in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, and to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shiganath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for your salvation, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. And he makes my feet like the deer's. And he makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in a very boots-on-the-ground way, I really hope that this series will be a way for us to set our minds on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Because our questions and our complaints, they, they, again, they reveal what we truly care about. They reveal our hopes, our dreams, our desires. They, they reveal, really, where our minds are set. But they also force us to ask another question. Where is it that we find our rest? Do we find it in God's sovereignty, or do we find it in our own answers and abilities? But our questions also force us to reckon with the reality of 
our destination when we complain to God. So do we, do we strive to st- – do we stay – arrive at our destination and then just stay in anger and frustration and confusion? Or like Habakkuk and like Job and like David, do we arrive at the destination of humility and repentance and resting in the sovereign work and grace of God? So as we prepare to come in Eucharist together, let's just one more time return to our original question. Can we question God? Yes, I think so. Can we complain? Sure. But we should do so in humility and in repentance. And not forgetting that God is sovereign. And not forgetting that it is God and God alone who has redeemed us through the body and blood of Christ. And so as we continue to wrestle with the powers and principalities at work over this present darkness, we know that there will be times of hardship and frustration and even times of anxiety and depression and confusion and loneliness. But we can with confidence through Christ, as the author of Hebrews tells us, draw near and bring all these things to the throne of grace so that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need, including our times of questioning and complaining. Thanks be to God. Amen.